Hey, how many plan on going to the Knott's Berry Farm? Hey, you know what? Can you get this word picture for a moment? Spring forward. <laughs> That's not what I'm seeing here. How about like shot forward? <laughs> time is it? Oh, time is it? We're going to have people walking in. It's going to be great. You know, I'll let you know when they come in. You don't need to look. <laughs> how many plan to go to Knott's Berry Farm? Knott's Berry Farm. Hey, let me encourage you to, to make a commitment today. Tickets will be on sale. Linda will be in the back in the foyer. Must be a French word for entryway or something. But she'll be in the back. And um, make a commitment. If you stop and think about this for a moment, if you're single, just commit to invite one person. Every couple here should invite another couple. I mean, that's the purpose of this evening. And if you think about it, it's, it's, it's not a bad deal. Uh, 12, the tickets aren't on here by design. Uh, prices aren't on here by design, so you can give the flyer. Uh, there's a map on here. The time's on here. The, the information's on here. The tickets also do not have prices on it so that you can just hand the ticket. And Jim printed them up so that the map is on the back of the ticket as well. So be praying about it. Make a commitment to do it. Grab a couple of tickets. The price is $12 for you, $6 for a guest. And that basically covers the cost. And it doesn't even cover the cost. We've got some people who have volunteered to subsidize the difference. And money from our fund will subsidize it as well. So that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we want to encourage. Um, make a commitment to do that. You can get tickets today. Um, next week, uh, pray for me. Not me, I guess. Pray for the high school group because... We're going to be going up to uh, Utah with them for a week, um, and, uh, and I'll be speaking at, on their ski trip, their annual uh, ski trip. And the good news is that they're only having one trip this year, so all of them will be there at one time. Uh, so we're going to be doing that. Please pray for us. Pray for them. Um, and and uh, we'll look forward to letting you know what happened when we came, come back, if, if we get back. <laughs> um, the other thing is uh, Easter Sunday, we don't meet. The following Sunday, so you know what's going on, we're going to start uh, an, a marriage series. It's been three years since we've done one. Uh, this one, uh, I think I'll entitle, uh, How to Enjoy Life, Though Married. And uh, <clears throat> Yeah, and, and, and regretfully, some of us aren't. <clears throat> and some of us aren't enjoying it either. But uh, so just to let you know, that's what's coming up in the, in the next month. So um, uh, just to kind of give you an idea of what's going on. Anyway, a few, uh, not, not too long ago in a recent conversation that I had with a gentleman, we were discussing a variety of subjects. And uh, finally, I think he became exasperated at how often I used the Bible to be a source of information for some of the things that we were discussing. And he just, he got so tired of it after a while, he just said, boy, you know what? Let me just tell you something here. I believe that the Bible is just a crutch for weak people. Now, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard that. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Man, you know, I believe the Bible is a crutch for weak people. And not being offended by it at all, I said, Exactly. I said, you know, that is probably one of the most astute observations that anyone's ever made in this conversation that I've had with people before. That is an excellent observation. Now, right about at this point, he was feeling a little good about himself. I said, that's exactly true. I said, and I reminded him of an old song. Remember the song? Well, it goes, uh, we all need somebody to lean on. You just might 
have a problem. Everybody. That, you know. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so, you know, you might, and the words go, you might have a problem that I'd understand. We all need somebody to lean on. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your strength to help you carry on. And I, so I reminded him that song. I said, you know, hey, you hear it all the time. There's songs all the time written about leaning on other people when we're not strong and when things are going bad and when we're weak and when we need help. We all need someone to lean on. So we all lean on something. So, so I don't particularly feel offended by the fact that you tell me that I'm weak and I lean on the Bible. What do you lean on? He goes, I don't need to lean on anybody. I say, well, then you're leaning on yourself. Isn't that true? You don't need anybody. You lean on yourself. Then you're leaning on your own strength. You're leaning on your own you know, fortitude. You're leaning on your own guts. You're leaning on your own masculinity. You're leaning on yourself. Have you ever let yourself down? Well, yeah. So, well, who else do you lean on? Well, lean on other people. And let me tell you something. It's good to lean on other people. We need to lean on other people. The Bible clearly says we need to lean on one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. We need to encourage one another when we're, when we're discouraged. We need to, uh, uh, to inject hope in people that, that have lost hope. We need to, to lean on one another. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it can be disastrous, too, if you're leaning on people for the wrong reason. Or if you're leaning on people and it leads you into situations that don't help you, but destroy you. I know people get into affairs because they're leaning on the person they're having the affair with and they get destroyed by it. They don't get helped by it. It ruins their life. But they're leaning on another person. So they lean on people. All right, I don't know. I was more going through it. Hey, what do you lean on, man? I know people lean on booze. I know people lean on drugs. I know, I know older people who begin to lean on their kids and try to live their life through their children. And I know kids who never grow up and still lean on their parents and they're leaning on them for support and for direction and for, for uh, acknowledgement and for strokes and for everything and they can't do anything unless their parents say it's okay. And they're 40 and 50 years old and they're still doing it. So leaning on another person isn't necessarily a, always a good thing. What are you leaning on? People lean on their education, they lean on their job, they lean on their money. And let me tell you what Jesus said about money. He said, hey, you want to lean on money? Well, when it fails, and it will, then where are you going to lean? Hey, what's money do for you when you're sick, when you're dying? It might get you medical attention, but it's not going to save your life necessarily. See, what money fails too. And so as we're going through this, I begin to realize, you know what? Where do you and where do I turn for support, for comfort, for hope, for encouragement? And you know what? I would never apologize to anybody for saying I turned to this book. Because I have not met a person yet in my lifetime who has said they followed the instructions of this book and it caused them problems. I've never met anybody who said, you know what, I followed God's counsel on, my, uh, on sexual relationships. I did it the way He said, and I got a sexual disease. Never met anybody. <laughs> never met anybody. Have you? I have never met anybody. 3,500 years, this book has withstood the test of time. It has never let anybody down. I would never apologize to anybody for saying I lean on this book. 
But I challenge them to consider what they lean upon. Because we're all leaning on something. And so we've discovered in the last couple of sessions that we're together that this book is a reliable source of strength. It is a reliable source of encouragement. It is a reliable source of comfort. It's a reliable source of advice. It is a reliable source of direction. It helps to eliminate the fog in our life and give us a clear path and direction to go in the future. It is trustworthy. And it exceeds every known and accepted historical test that's placed on any document of antiquity. It is a reliable book. So we can look at it and we can, look, and, and we can, and we can use it. And we can use it for our advantage. We can use it for our benefit. Now, here's where we run into a problem. We discussed through the testimony of Jesus as we looked at the Bible that he said over and over again that the scriptures were the word of God. He said over and over again, have you not read... Have you not heard? Do you not know what it says? The Bible over and over again says, And the Lord said to me, The Lord says this. This is the written word of God. Jesus affirmed that, that it was authoritative, that it was accurate, that it was dependable, and he said this about it. It is a source of absolute truth. He said, that, he said in John 17, as he was praying for his disciples, he said this. He said, Father, sanctify them, set them apart from this word, because thy word is truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and absolute. All right? You following this? And it's important to understand it. It is the absolute truth. Now here's, here, now, here's where we run into difficulty, okay? You ready for the next logical leap that we need to take? And that's this. All right? This book is truth. This book is authoritative. This book is correct. But we can also mishandle it as well. And there's where we run into all kinds of problems. The info is right. How we interpret the information and how we apply the information is where a lot of us are running into all kind of trouble. The book's right. And so what we need to do, and what we're going to do today, is learn how to handle the Scriptures in the overhead accurately. To handle it accurately. To know how to interpret it. To know how to apply it, to learn what it does say. It makes a big difference. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the first thing you think of when you hear the term abuse? Abuse. Pain. What else? I'm sorry. Yeah, pain that is a result of misuse. I mean, think about it for a second. We live in, a, in an age of abuse. We really do. We've got sexual abuse. We've got physical abuse, spousal abuse, child abuse. We've got emotional abuse. And we might as well throw one more in here. We've got biblical abuse. 
We've got people and we have had people for centuries who have used this book to inflict abuse upon people by manipulating what it says for their own purposes and the resulting pain and disappointment is probably the greatest disappointment that any of us could ever experience. Without question. I don't have any question about it. The improper use of Scripture. We know the Bible is reliable, but the problem that we have, the danger remains that we can misinterpret it and we can also misapply it and it's a very dangerous thing. Now, I guess if you, if you looked at it, how does it happen? And the problem that you're going to see as we go through this is that um, here's some things that we need to consider. Number one, as you look at this, it has nothing to do with sincerity. All right? Let's, just, let's get that resolved right away. It has nothing to do with sincerity. Some of the sincerest people that you'll ever meet, people that love the Lord, people that want to do what's right, are still susceptible and still capable of mishandling the Scripture. And in fact, many throughout the history of the church have mishandled the Scripture thinking that it was for the, for the, in the best interest of the people who heard it. That's documented historically. I mean, one of the problems that Martin Luther had with the Catholic Church was the mishandling of Scripture. Martin Luther loved the Catholic Church. He was a Catholic monk and he loved the church. Yet as he was studying Scripture, he began to realize that the institution, the church institution, was mishandling the Scripture. And that's what all the brouhaha was about. He said, hey, wait, I got 95 things here that are in conflict with what the Bible teaches. We need to deal with it. You're guilty of mishandling the Scripture and we need to get it resolved. And so there was the, the idea that the... You know, the, 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 the uh, the lay people could not understand correctly and they would misapply the scripture so that we won't want to put it in the hands of people out here because it opens it up for anybody to de decide whatever they think it means. And we see that happening all throughout our society today. We all have the scriptures in our hand. We all have the availability to sit down and read the Bible. But also what that does is it allows for misinterpretation. It allows for misunderstanding and it allows for biblical abuse. Well, a very sincere church said, hey, we don't want to allow that to happen, so we're going to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people because they're not educated, they don't understand how to apply it, they don't understand how to interpret it. And so what was meant to be something good turned out to be devastating because out of sincerity, they didn't think people were intelligent enough to read their Bibles. So it has nothing to do with sincerity, and it certainly doesn't have to do anything to do with those who are theologically sound. And we're going to see that in a minute, some of the most educated people, as far as theology were concerned, were guilty over and over again of biblical abuse. They mishandled Scripture and Jesus called them on it. Also, it has nothing to do with personality. Let's just get something straight right now. We are so geared toward personality. we got people who drip with charisma. I mean, that's what they put on. Oh, what cologne are you wearing? I wear charisma. You know, and, and they drip with this stuff, you know. And what happens is people are just, they, they get mesmerized by somebody with charisma. And so everything they say must be right. Why? Because we like him. And yet, you look at this, hey, he's sincere, and, he, and he's, he's got personality, and he's got charisma, and he's got charm, and so therefore, he must be right. And the theological term for the 90s is, not. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. It doesn't matter. And it has nothing to do with popularity. 
Hey, some of the biggest churches are filled by pulpits of guys who mishandle the Scripture on a regular basis. So it has nothing to do with any of those things. And so as we look at it, we need to understand that that's what we're dealing with, the problem of mishandling Scripture. Now, here's another thing they need to consider. The problem in our culture is not the lack of biblical information or availability. 90% of recent, recent survey, 97% of households in America have Bibles. That's interesting. Out of the 97%, less than 60% read them. And the 60% that read them, read them on an average of 63 minutes a week. So what's that come out to? Like nine minutes a day on the average. So information is not the problem. We have it available to us, but we need to be careful students of the Bible and we need to be careful to make the proper interpretation because if we don't, it could be a real embarrassing thing. When we were in Switzerland a few years ago, this was, this was a story that was going around and it was a true story and it illustrates the problem of misinterpreting something. I love this story. Some of you may have heard it. But there was an English woman who was looking for a room in Switzerland and uh, she asked the local village schoolmaster to help her out. Well... There was a place that suited her, and she finally found it, and she returned to London for her luggage, and she remembered when she got back to London that she didn't remember seeing a bathroom in the room that she wanted to rent. And so she decided to write a letter to the people who were going to rent her the room, and in, in London, in, in England, they call the bathroom the water closet. All right. And so she decided to save time that she would not spell out water closet, that she would just give it the initials WC. And so she wrote back and she wrote back to the guy who was going to rent her the room and said, you know, excuse me, I'm looking forward to coming. You know, I want the room, but I noticed that there was no WC um, or I didn't see, you know, see it. Where, is there one available? So the guy got the letter, asked the parish priest because he didn't know what WC meant. And they finally decided it stood for the Wesleyan Church. And uh, so the schoolmaster wrote this letter back to her, said, Dear Madam, the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful, in the center of a beautiful grove of trees. <clears throat> it is capable of holding 350 people at a time and is open each Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. So plan your day carefully. <laughs> a large number of folks attend during the summer, so it is suggested that you get there early, although there is plenty of standing room. Some people like to take their lunches there and make a day of it, especially on Thursday when there is organ accompaniment. The acoustics, the acoustics are very good and everyone can hear the slightest sound. You may be interested to know that my daughter met her husband and was married in RWC. We hope you'll be here in time for our upcoming bazaar. I'm sure it would be. Um, the proceeds will go toward the purchase of plush seats, which the folks agree are a long-felt need, as the present seats all have holes in them. <laughs> My wife is rather delicate, and uh, therefore she cannot attend regularly. It has been six months since the last time that she went. Naturally, it pains her very much not to be, <laughs> not to be able to go more often. Well, I shall close now with the desire to accommodate you in every way possible. I will be happy to save you a seat down front or near the door, whichever you prefer. Interesting story. And, uh, and it actually does apply to what we're going to talk about. If you've got your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9. Let's start there. Matthew chapter 9. It is, it is a must. It is not optional. It is critical that we... Learn 
to interpret Scripture properly. It's a must. If we do not, the story was funny, but the results of misinterpretation of Scripture aren't. They are as disappointing and they can be as tragic as any abuse that you've ever come in contact with. We need to interpret Scripture properly or it will open the door for a variety of tragedies. And many of us have experienced them and many of us understand exactly what I'm talking about. In uh, Matthew chapter 9, let's take a look at a couple examples of biblical abuse. Look at verse 10. It says, and it happened that as he was reclining, speaking of our Lord, he was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were, and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus and they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, listen to what he says to him. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Did you see what he said? He said, you know, we got a problem. You see the word but? You know, there's a strong contrast of thoughts and ideas. And so as we're going through this, he's saying to them, hey, but, wait a minute. But go and learn, in verse 13, what this means. And he quotes Hosea chapter 6, Verse 6. He says, you guys are too much. Here you are. You're always quoting scripture. You know the Bible. You know the Old Testament. And here you are quoting scripture again. And you haven't learned a thing about what it means. You can quote it accurately. But you don't know the meaning. And there are a lot of people who can quote the Bible. And don't have a clue what it means. So don't ever get, you know, intimidated by someone who quotes Scripture because they may not know what they're talking about. He says, you go and learn this. Go and learn this because you don't have a clue what you're talking about. All right? Now we've got a problem here because what Jesus is saying is this. That passage has a meaning, a very specific meaning is not subject to your interpretation of the meeting. It is not for the group to discuss what it means. It means something specific. It's not relative. It means something specific. And what you think it means is wrong. You're wrong. So he goes on. And they haven't caught on yet. Look at verse uh, chapter 12. Same thing. Here, guys that know the Lord, man, they know Scripture. They quote it all the time. They study it all the time. John chapter 3, Jesus, I mean, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Lord, how do you get to heaven? And he said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And he goes through and explains to him how to have a right relationship with God. And here's the punchline, the kicker that he says to him in the 10th verse. He says, you are a teacher of Israel. And you don't have a clue what you're talking about. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that pathetic? Isn't that the mishandling of Scripture? Isn't that biblical abuse? Isn't that why there are a whole bunch of people that were being abused by the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees? 
And they weren't leading them closer to God. They were driving them away from God. Isn't that why people who misinterpret Scripture today turn people off to the Gospel? Isn't that why when you know the Scripture and you know the love that God has for people and you realize that it's by grace we're saved through faith that you don't screw their heads all up and tell them that they need to change their lifestyle and their behavior and they need to start doing this and all that because they know they can't do it. They don't want to do it. They don't have the power to do it. But isn't it nice when you know the Word says it's by grace you're saved through faith and yet while they are sinners Christ died for them that you can just take people and tell them right where they are that God loves you right as you are just the way you are. You don't have to change. You don't have to do anything because you can't. Jesus died for you and He'll free you from it. All you need to do is trust Him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That draws people to them. Doesn't send them away from them. We're all guilty of, hand, of biblical abuse for our own purposes, for our own benefit. We manipulate and distort it so somehow or another our agenda can be followed. And so what he's saying here in, in chapter 12, same thing. At the same time, at that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields and His disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, here we go again. Hey, wait a minute. Have you not read? Have you not read what David? David. You know David, you honor David still, don't you? Don't you know what David did when he got hungry and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to, to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Haven't you read that? Don't you study that? Don't you know that? He goes, or, okay, in case you missed that one, have you not read this one then? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? He goes, but I say to you that something greater than the temple was here. But if you had known what this means, here we go, Hosea 6, 6. They had a problem with this passage. They still didn't understand it. He said, but if you would have known what this meant, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would not condemn the innocent. Let me tell you something. Over and over again as I read this, I begin to realize one thing. That is something that we are still guilty of today. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I do not want you to go around telling people that they need to try to do things to please me because they can't. That's why I sent my son. If you could fix it on your own, I wouldn't have had to send him to do what he did. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And he goes on. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You starting to get a little picture here? Educated men, sound in their theology, could, could quote the Scriptures. And were guilty of mishandling it on a regular basis and abused people with what their interpretation was. I mean, they just destroyed people's lives. Now, I want to share something with you, and, uh, and, and, it's a and it's really a struggle for me because here's what happened to me, and, 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 and maybe you can identify with it. 1978, I accepted Christ as my Savior. According to the Bible, I became a Christian at that point. According to the Bible, it has the authority to tell me that from that moment on, that he who began a good work in me that day, he continues to work in my life and will continue to do so until the day that Jesus comes back, until the day of resurrection. He's going to keep doing that. There's a place reserved for me in heaven. I know that, and it's not based on what I did. It's based on what Jesus did for me. That's as simple as that. And I can have all the confidence and assurance in the world because that's what this book says. That's as simple as it gets. That's it in a nutshell, okay? I don't know nothing. I became a Christian. I don't know anything. See, I don't know nothing. I don't even know how to talk right. 
see? And uh, so I go to this Bible study. I go to this Bible study, and we're sitting down. Lynn and I are sitting in this Bible study. First Bible study I ever went to in my life. And there's a circle. Circles are always kind of interesting, you know? Uh, if you've never been to a Bible study, circles are not a cool thing to do. And uh, so we're all sitting around. Everyone's looking at each other, and the teacher's sitting there, and he goes around the room, and he reads a, a section from the Bible, and he says, What does this verse mean to you? And he starts over here and starts going around the room. This person says it means this. This person says it means that. This person says it means this. This person says it means that. That's good. That's good. That's good. Then the guy comes to me. What do you think it means? And I say, I don't have a clue. That's why I'm here. I don't know. I never read this thing before. I don't have a clue. Now, what's frightened me about this experience is that person said that, and that person said the opposite. And you said they're both right. And now you're asking me. I'm scared to death. Everything's right. Everything I knew was right when I came into the room and I thought all the stuff I knew was wrong and I needed to learn how to live a life pleasing to God and I didn't know that I was doing everything right because I couldn't do anything wrong because nothing was right and nothing was wrong. And I'm sitting there going, gee, I think I need to teach a Bible study someday. <laughs> but I need to know what it says first so I can do it right. It was nuts. Have you ever been there? Do you ever walk out feeling like you learned something? How many walk out with headaches? You walk out with headaches, you're going, She's in this, he's in this, they're all right. Man, the truth will set you free. Ignorance won't. And opinions won't. Opinions will mess your head up. Well, I think this. I don't care what you think. You're an idiot most of the time. And why am I going to believe you? Well, now when you talk about the Bible, you think it means this. You don't know what you think. You're an idiot. But you don't say that. You just walk out of the house and you go, man, I need some aspirin. Or you go, man, that was really deep. Deep. Hey, manure's deep. You been on a farm? That's deep. Doesn't mean it's good. It just means it's deep. That's nuts. Man, I got so much to do. I'm running out of time. Hey, so anyway, so I run across an article. Let me just share this with you. Maybe this will help you understand why I'm just so frustrated. Barna Research Group comes out with a survey. So it's a, a survey entitled, What Americans Believe. All right? Here's the results. 62% of Americans concur there is no such thing as absolute truth. And that different people can define truth in conflicting ways that will still be correct. All right? The figure rises to 74% for those in the 18 to 25-year-old group. Do you understand what that says? We've got a generation of kids who have learned from us, frankly, that there are no absolute truths in life. It's only wrong if it's wrong to you. 
It's only right if it's right to you. And you can believe whatever you want, and I can believe whatever I want, because this is America, and we all have to accept it. Oh, right. There are absolute truths. Well, I don't believe that it's really gravity, man. Oh, really? What do you believe it is? Well, I don't believe it exists. Well, it does. Well, you may think it does, but it doesn't to me. And I'm entitled to my opinion. Well, so what? Let me hold you off a cliff. You still want to maintain that opinion? You know, there's truths or there's not truths. And you know what? what we, have, we, we have promoted this absurdity in church and in Bible studies and in Sunday school classes by asking the stupid question, what does this verse mean to you? Who cares what it means to you? Here's a better question. What does this verse mean? Not to you, because if I say to you, then I have to accept what you say. So it's my fault for asking it. But I'm going to ask you this. What does this verse mean? Now, I may ask, how does this apply to you? That would be valid. Because when the, when the Bible says, thou shalt not steal, what does that mean? I think it means not to steal. Now, I don't know what the original Hebrew meant, but I think it means not to steal. How many would agree, thou shalt not steal, means thou shalt not steal? Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> now, how many of you would apply that in different ways? Not apply stealing in different ways. Apply thou shalt not steal in different ways. Now, no one's going to answer. But I just thought I'd think of a couple things. There are a lot of ways to steal stuff. Right? And so, while you may say that means thou shalt not steal, i got to stop shoplifting and robbing 7-Elevens. And you may be sitting there saying, thou shalt not steal. That means that I better not cheat on my taxes anymore. And while you say, thou shalt not steal, you may be thinking, man, you know what? I'm stealing from God by not, according to Malachi, not giving him tithes and offerings. Now, thou shalt not steal means thou shalt not steal. That's all that it means. But the application is going to be significantly different based on how we're convicted about where we are in our walk and our relationship with God and what he's saying to me about the application of it. All right? Is that fair? There's a major difference between the two points. The Bible has a specific meaning and we need to understand that that is accurate. That is true. That is absolute. And we need to get away from this mentality that everybody's opinion is valid because conflicting opinions cannot be valid. And even if everyone is in agreement of an opinion, it doesn't mean that that's what the text meant. Jesus answered that very specifically. The Pharisees all agreed that was their interpretation of the text. And he said, you're nuts. You're wrong. You're wrong. That is not what the text meant. That is not it at all. And so I stopped and think, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Oh, let's see. Profitable for reproof. Profitable for teaching. Profitable for correction. You can't correct somebody if no one's wrong. Somebody's wrong. 
And we get so defensive and we get so sensitive because that means we've got to tell somebody, no, that's wrong. One of the most incredible experiences you'll ever have in a Bible study is when you're teaching a Bible study and someone says, well, I think that means that. And I say, man, you know what? I'm sure you think that's what it means, but you're wrong. And let me explain to you why. And you know what people think? Oh, man, you know, I really want people to keep coming back. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to have any confrontation with anybody. So we'll just kind of, in a nice way, say, well, eh, maybe, oh, maybe. No, you know what I say? That's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. And you know what's amazing? People will still keep coming back. And they'll go home and they won't have to buy any Tylenol. But they'll go home and say, man, I learned something. I learned something. Because I knew when I went in, I didn't know anything. And when I walked out, I know something now that I didn't know before I went in. I learned something. I didn't learn anything the first Bible studies I went to when everybody's opinion was right. I just learned that Bible study, if it's like everything else, was a waste of time. And I'm not going anymore. That's stupid. If everyone's going to walk in with the same information and walk out with the same information, even though they walked in, they didn't know whether it was right or not, and they walk out and they still don't know whether it's right or not, and nothing changes, what a colossal waste of time. How stupid. Turn with me in your Bibles for a moment to Nehemiah, chapter 8. Four observations. And I figure, the way I figure this, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I figure most of you are just kind of like getting here now. So, is that true? How many of you just got here now? Raise your hand. Oh, how many of you just got here now that I asked the question? Oh, huh, what, what? Yeah. Well, anyway, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you, don't learn, if you don't take anything else out with you, take this out with you, okay? Because these observations will help you. And, and take him too. Um, these observations will help you um, handle Scripture more accurately. That's really what we want to do. How can I handle Scripture more accurately? How can I leave here knowing that, hey, the Scripture's right, and I need to understand how to handle it accurately. Nehemiah chapter 8. Okay, here we go. This is probably the best passage you ever find in Scripture that deals with this particular problem. Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. We're having a revival at Watergate. How appropriate. And uh, how prophetic, too. And, uh, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then, his, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the month. And he read from it from the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium which was made for that specific purpose. And beside him stood all kind of guys, and I can't pronounce their names, and we don't have time. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, they all stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, shouting, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands when they bowed low and worshipped the ground, uh, Lord, with their faces to the ground. And these gentlemen explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood what they were reading. All right, are you ready? I mean, here we go. Four quick observations as we go through it. The first one. Whoa, this is going to really shock you. This one's a deep, deep, deep principle. A major observation. But it's one that I hope we don't miss. You want to learn how to handle the Scripture accurately? How about reading it? Huh? That's an idea. It's a good start, huh? It's a good place to start. I am so tired of people who have an opinion about everything and they haven't read it in the Scripture. 
You believe that? Hey, that's wonderful. Can you do me a favor and can you share with me what passage you read, what verses that you read? Can you share with me the context in which that was written? Can you share what was going on culturally at that time? Can you share with me what the meaning of that is? Can you just share with me why you believe what you believe? Well, no. Well, why do you believe that? Well, because I heard. Well, because I just know. Because I felt it. I experienced it. Whatever. You know, we have all kind of answers for this stuff. And all I say is, have you read it? Have you read it? See, you know what he did? Look what it says. He read it aloud. He read it from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, let me tell you something. Now, let me, let me be gentle here. Because, I mean, you're here and everyone else is still in bed, so why should I dump on you, huh? That's the way I look at it. How many of you read your Bibles? I mean, I hope some, some of you do. Now, here's another problem, though. How many of you not only read it, but how many of you are attentive to it? How many of you listen and... and, and and observe what's being said. They read it, and the people were attentive, and they read it from daybreak till noon. And I read this, you know what? You talk about being convicted of something. Man, I'll tell you what. We moan and groan if somebody goes over 45 minutes. Because 45 minutes is the God-established time and ordained throughout all of human history for the length of time. And, you know, and they come up with cute little things. The mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. You know, little tricky things like that. You know, and we say this kind of stuff. And then I began to realize, well, there's a reason why the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. Because we're sitting down and they stood up. Wouldn't that be great when you dig that? Just everybody stand up and stand up for the whole time and pay attention to what's being read. They read it and they were attentive to it. And you know why they were attentive? Because you can't nod off when you're standing up. (laughs) This is great stuff. Think about it. They were all standing there. People, and then I see people sitting down. We, we, oh man, we had the crummy seats in the old place, and these are really cushiony and stuff. And, and I, I see people, and they just sound like they want like this. <laughs> or you just hear you hear this every now and then. Oh, gee. And and you just you know, and you wonder. You just wonder sometimes. You go, man, wouldn't you pay more attention if you were standing up? You'd have to. And it'd be so funny because when you fell down, then we'd all know you weren't paying attention. It'd be the greatest thing in the world. It's like, drag that one out. Just drag them out. It'd be great. And so that's what they did. And they paid attention. They read it. They read it. They read it. They read it. And if you don't apply anything else, let me just challenge you with this. Hey, you know what? Just read it. Just read it. You hear somebody teach something, then you go check it out. Acts 17. The Bereans, more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, Thessalonians because they checked the Scripture to make sure that what Paul said was true. But if Pastor David says it, it must be right. If Swindoll says it, it must be right. If any person here on the radio says it, it must be right because they're paid to teach this stuff. They must know. 
hey, the Pharisees and the scribes were idiots, scripturally. And that's what they did for a living. All I'm saying is, you better check it out. You better read it yourself. You better dig into it. Because let me tell you something about Jim Jones. Jim Jones was preaching the word. And then he got off target. And he started going a different direction. And the people who checked the words that he spoke against Scripture got off the train before it crashed in the jungles of Guyana. See what I'm saying? Stop being so lazy. Read the Word. Be attentive to what you read. And if something's not right, and the Holy Spirit who instructs us and guides us into truth, and He begins to say, hey, warning, 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 something's wrong, something's wrong, that's not right, then you better pay attention Otherwise, you're in for a spiritual shipwreck and you're in for biblical abuse. And there's no one that I know who's been abused that said, it was really a neat experience. You should try it sometime. It really deepened my understanding of human condition. I've never heard anybody say that. It's like, man, I wish I never would have been abused. Because nothing good came out of it. And that's the truth. And so you go through it. Hey, read the scripture. That's an idea. And the second thing is, how about... Having a respect for it. You know what's interesting is you look at this passage and you see that it says in, in 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. So be it. Right on, brother. That's the word. That's the word of God. That's right. It's absolute. It's truth. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to know. And they got excited about it. Man, I'll tell you what. We've got biblical precedent to shout every now and then, Amen. It's okay. That's it, brother. That's the word. Preach the word. That's the right thing. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to do. That's what it says. It's right. Amen, brother. Amen, Amen brother. See, we're just not used to this stuff, man. You know, we need a respect for the Word of God. It is absolute. It is absolutely correct. It is right for all of eternity. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will never fail. That's what the Lord said, and it's true. Let me just tell you something. You cannot claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and not believe what He says about the Scripture. It's as simple as it gets. He affirmed it. He confirmed it, and He acknowledged that it was the Word of God. It's right. And you know what they did? They respected it. They stood up and they showed respect. You know, I'm thinking about this whole thing of dozing off. And I begin to realize, can you imagine for a moment? This book, when it's opened, is the voice of God speaking to you and I. How incredibly interesting it would get if God himself came here and he talked to you and me and we nodded off. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. Did you say something? Oh, no. No, I'm sorry. Whoa, think about it for a second. Have you ever been in the company of someone who you could not wait to hear what they had to say? That every word that you, that you were on pins and needles, you were sitting at the edge of your seat, you were with someone that you, that you respected and had honor for and had tremendous wisdom and insight to offer you and they gave you a, a piece of their valuable time. How rude it would be, how stupid it would be to fall asleep and miss it. Oh, did, did he leave? When did he go? How crazy that is. And we open this up, and to me it shows we do not respect the Word of God 
like they respected the Word of God because they knew what it was. It's not just another book. It's not just another story. It's not just another self-help cassette. It's none of these things. It is the Word of God. It is God speaking to you. It is God speaking to me about where I'm at in life and where He wants me to go. It's God's warning to me about the things that I'm thinking of doing, saying, don't do that. You're heading for trouble. Do it this way and I promise you success. It's God saying to me, listen, son, I know what I'm talking about. I've been around for like all of eternity. So that's a long time. And, and I know from where I speak. And I know what I'm saying is right. And I know what I'm saying is good. And I know what I'm saying is helpful. Would you please pay attention? Could you please wake up for a second? That's what they're doing. And they worship God. Man, how much more we should worship God for the time that He took and the energy and the effort to get this book into our hands so that we have it accessible to us on a regular basis. How much more should we praise God for that? God, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to communicate with me, not only through your son and what he's done, but through your written word that you've taken to give to me so that I could pick it up and I could hear your voice speak to me on a regular basis. God, thank you. And they praise and they worship God because of it. But it also means this. Accurately handling scripture means that the truth is explained so that all can understand. Now, here's where it gets real interesting, because I get people saying, well, why should we explain it? I mean, after all, can't we all interpret it? Don't we all, all, aren't all of us capable of interpreting it? And, hey, why even go to church? Why listen to a pastor? Why listen to a teacher? Because, hey, don't we all have the Holy Spirit? If we've come to know Christ, the Spirit of God lives within us. And don't we have the Spirit of God to teach us and guide us into all truth? And after all, why do we need it explained to us? Right? Some of, the, some of the most theologically stupid people that I've ever met are people that aren't involved in Bible study. They're not plugged into a good Bible teaching church. And they have their own ideas about what Scripture means. They come up with all these crazy things. Some of the dumbest things in the world have come out of people from that type of source. Why do I say that? Because I just ask a stupid question. Why did God gift certain men to be teachers? Why did God gift certain men to be pastors and teachers? What is 1 Corinthians 12 talking about? What is Ephesians chapter 4 talking about? What is Romans talking about? The gifted people. To help to explain. And let me tell you something. What that means is very simply this. The person who has a gift of God to teach has been given a gift from God as all of us as believers have been given a gift. That's what God has given to them for the purpose of exercising that gift for the betterment and the building up of the body of Christ doesn't make me any more important than you. It just means that that's the gift God's given me and that's the gift I exercise. You have a gift, you're given something, it was special to you, then exercise it. doesn't mean we're any different than one another. But what it means is simply this. If that's what God has gifted you to do, then you do it. And it means by explaining is it take, taking a person where they are here helping them to understand the context of the passage, the times and the culture, the place and, and everything that's going on in the events, and saying, that's what was happening there. It has absolute meaning to them. And now what we need to do is bridge the gap between then and now so that you understand how to apply it today in your circumstances, you know, maybe 1,500 years later, maybe 2,000 years later, maybe uh, 3,500 years later. All that the gift of teaching does is bring insight to be able to take the words of Scripture because the words have power in of themselves. God is the one that provides all the source of information and wisdom. And all that the teacher does is say, this is what it means, and now how do you apply it today? That is what it means. See, a lot of us don't dig into the context. We don't dig into the background. We don't, we don't get into all that because it's too boring for people. 
What does that have to do with today? Well, it has a lot to do with today because you need to understand what it meant. And this is what it means. Now, let me bridge the gap for you and here's what you need to do. You follow that? That's what a good Bible teacher does. A good Bible teacher, when you walk out, you should say, man, you know what? I never understood what that meant, but now I do. And the result is very simple. And the result is this. It always results in obedience to the Scripture. And so as you go through Nehemiah 8, what you'll begin to realize is that uh, they had a specific problem. And the problem was, because they were in captivity for 70 years, they were not honoring God by doing the things that the Old Testament, the, old, the, the Scriptures had laid out. One of the things was, it was the Feast of Booths. And so they're reading it and they began to understand that God says we need to go out and get branches and get twigs and build booths and live in these booths. And so that's what they said. And that's what it meant. It wasn't, well, gee, what does this passage mean to you? Well, I don't know. It doesn't mean anything to me, so I don't have to do anything. No, I don't think so. It meant, hey, you're supposed to be doing this. And so they read it, and look what it says. And that they should proclaim the word and spread throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go into the hill country, bring back branches from olive wild trees and from myrtles, palm shade trees, to make booths as it's written. So guess what they did? So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on the roofs and the courtyards and the courts of the house of God and the square of the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. And guess what they did? They lived in them. Why? Because that's what it said to do. Why'd they do it? Because they understood what it said to do. So they went and they did it. It didn't get any simpler than that. Good Bible instruction always should result in obedience on the part of both the, the teacher and the listener. All of us have to apply it. All of us are subject to the same thing. That's what the Word says. That's what we got to do. Thou shalt not steal. Stop stealing. Thou shalt not lie. Stop lying. You know, if you go through, ask yourself some questions. What am I doing in my life that I'm pleasing before God? What does the Word of God say about it? Guess what? i got to either stop doing it or I need to start doing it. And all Bible study is is a jump start to get us motivated to do what pleases God. That's what the Word is for. A lamp under my feet and a light under my path. Anytime you're in a Bible study, you've got to come to a point of application. And the application is always this. How can I apply that in my life now? Now. So, a couple questions for you. And we'll end on this. What's the application? What's the application? We're all sitting here. We're all listening to all this stuff. What's the application? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to do anything? What are you going to do? I'm going to read the Bible. If no one else gets anything out of it, just get that one thing. Man, I need to read the Bible more often. I just need to read it. I need to study passages. I need to read the Bible. Maybe it means i got to go buy some, a concordance. Maybe it needs to go get a good biblical dictionary and encyclopedia so I understand places and times and culture and understand the context in which it was being placed in. Maybe I need to do that. Maybe I get, just get a good Bible dictionary. Hey, you know what's amazing? If you pick out a word and you get a Bible dictionary, the dictionary will explain what that word means. And you don't have to waste hours in a Bible study saying, what's this word mean to you? Oh, well, let's save some time and pull the dictionary out and see what it means. It means what it means. That's all that it means. It doesn't matter what you think it means. A glass is a glass. What do you think this thing is? Well, I think it's a glass. Well, what's a glass? Well, it's a, um, uh, um, uh, it's a thing that uh, you can drive to work in. Oh, good. That's good. Hmm. What's a glass to you? Oh, it's a vessel that contains liquid. Oh, that's very good. That's a possibility. What's a glass to you? You know, hey, save yourself some time. Pull out the dictionary. Look at it. That's what it is. 
So, application. I'm going to read the Bible. Hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to shout amen a couple times next Sunday just to see how it feels. I'll try it a little bit at a time, you know, start, start out slow. You know, I don't know. What are you going to do? See, that's Bible study leading to application. That's what we need to do. Read the Bible. Pay attention to it. See the words. Understand that it has a correct meaning and dig through it and sweat it out and get to it so that you have it, so that it's right. Otherwise, you're going to misapply it. Stop giving your opinion about everything and start quoting passages and verses and dig into them. But you better study them. And stop quoting people, gag me anyway. Quote passages, quote verses, quote the Word of God. Wouldn't it be better to do than say, well, Pastor David said, hey, that's great, and I'm glad that he says it, and I'm glad he's preaching the Word. But I'd rather say, hey, you know, Pastor David was preaching out of John chapter 7, and this is what John chapter 7 has to say, and this is what we need to dig into. That's smarter. You know why? Because we don't need a battle of, hey, this pastor said this, that pastor said that, that speaker said this, that speaker said that. Who cares? Stop the nonsense. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says. And His Word will set you free. Let's read it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the time that we have together. Thanks for Your Word. Thanks for all who have been uh, shot forward into springtime, that they're here and that uh, they're attentive to Your Word. God, give us a newfound respect for who you are, a respect for your word, a reverence for the truth that we find in it, and the courage and the strength and the conviction to do what it says to do. It's as simple as it gets. God, help us to stop promoting a society and a system of relativism. Help us to get back to absolutes, which include the truth of your word. You say to sanctify us in truth, that your word is truth. May we be people who are separate from this world, who are set apart for the purpose of declaring the absolute truth of the word of God. And may we be obedient people as well. As we listen to what you have to say, attentive to the things that we find, and obedient to the point of action. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Um, I ran a little long because I knew I wasn't going to be here, so I was trying to get in two shots at once. So anyway... Um, Please buy your ticket, or at least, if nothing else, just make a commitment. Get your tickets now so you have a month or a couple of weeks to start handing them out for Knott's Farm. See you at the end of the month.